Now, I don't care if you're the Pope of Rome, President of the United States, Man of the Year, something can all go wrong. I'll be taking these huggies and uh, whatever cash you got. There's more to life than a little money, you know. I'm the dude, so that's what you call me, you know? Uh... The uncertainty principle. It proves we can't ever really know what's going on. kids. Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Life of the Mind, a podcast about the Coen brothers. I'm Barbara Vandenberg. I'm Jason Kyle. And I'm Chris Ayers. Uh, We are three movie-obsessed dorks, some of us with jobs in media, some not, (laughs) Uh, united by our love of movies and specifically the Coen brothers. And today we're going to discuss the dark horse of the early stage of the Coen brothers career a much maligned at the time and i think still critically undervalued film the hudsucker proxy from 1994 yeah 94 is one of my i think my single best year for movies if that at least in my lifetime a lot of favorite films come out in 94 so there was a lot of competition. It was also like a, it's a formative, we were at like formative ages. Like we're not all quite the same age, but we were like, you know, that was adolescence, like formative years for discovering cinema. Yeah. I feel like 94 was important for, for sure. a lot of people in our micro generation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just thinking that too. Like this is about when I started realizing that uh, movies weren't just, weren't there just to babysit. <laughs> uh, they were there to entertain, <laughs> you know. More than just something for your parents to put in a VHS player to shut yeah. you up for a little bit. Yeah. This was the year that I started going to the movies without my family, just by myself, because we had a movie theater within walking distance that I worked mm-hmm. at and saw everything for free, basically. So big year. Um, so one of the things I wanted to bring up, uh, sort of related business, is that Ryan Johnson was on WTF with Mark Marin a couple weeks ago. And it was a good, good conversation. You should listen to it if you like Ryan Johnson. But he said that uh, he was inspired to write, start writing films after watching Miller's Crossing and then discovering the inspiration from Dashiell Hammett and that he started reading a lot of Hammett and then his, his first film, Brick, was mostly inspired by Dashiell Hammett. So I thought that was pretty cool. Ryan Johnson being relevant right now. His Glass Onion just came out a couple months ago. That's why I like Brick so much. Brick has always been... I, I... I loved it when I first saw it. It's always been my favorite, that sort of dashel hammity cadence to the dialogue has always hit a sweet spot for me. I think that's the only Ryan Johnson movie I haven't seen is Brick. <gasps> and after I heard him say that, that is all I want to read now. Because I had just finished The Glass Key right after, like, right when I listened to that interview. And now I'm like gonna get now red harvest is next and like i want to read like all these hammer books the glass key was so great red harvest will be uh red harvest will be interesting for you um i believe a kurosawa movie is loosely based on red harvest that's what i hear so i'm kind of yeah i believe yojimbo Mm -hmm. is a sort of remake and you have not been a watcher of Kurosawa's films, which is well, that all changed last month. <gasps> <laughs> you lost your virginity, your Kurosawa V card. Yep, 
<laughs> yeah. What was it? Yeah, I um, I'm at that moment in in uh, work and everything else where I um have like absolutely nothing to do, or I was, and I remembered I have a Canopy account, <laughs> and I watched nothing but like art movies, and one of them was Rashomon. Oh, great. <gasps> That's a perfect intro to mm-hmm. Kurosawa. And what did you think of Rashomon? Um, other than obviously, it's not going to win any uh, awards from the Women's League. <laughs> um, but um, it's nice to see where that whole storytelling device began. Um, I think it would have had some more a more impact on me had I not watched the last duel like a few months earlier. Because, like, obviously that movie takes a lot, borrows a lot from that device where they tell the same story over and over, but from different angles. But I really liked it. Well, and you've seen, Uh, probably without realizing it half the time, dozens and dozens and dozens of mm. television episodes and movies and and whatever that borrow that device from Rashomon without ever having seen Rashomon before. Yeah, and that's why... um, that's why I was always so hesitant to watch it because I knew that, like, I knew what the Rashomon effect was, but without watching watching Rashomon, and um, and I didn't think it'd have the same impact for me as it did for everyone else. But I really, um, I really just kind of put that aside, and I just watched it and enjoyed it, and I really liked like the visuals alone are just amazing, and. Um, I, I just really, um, it made me want to watch more for sure. I, I, I really enjoyed that movie a lot. And I think that was like the perfect one to go for. And now that I'm sort of like on this hammock kick as I finished the glass key, finally, I really like that. I want to read Red Harvest and see all the movies there that come mm, from cool. that. Cause I don't, which, cause you, you said, yo, Jimbo's the. Yeah, Yojimbo, and then um, um, A Fistful of Dollars, which is the spaghetti Western version of Yojimbo. And Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, you've got a lot of connected movie watching ahead of you. Yeah. And you'll see all the the, there's I can relate anything to Star Wars, but obviously Kurosawa, there's a lot of Kurosawa in Star Wars. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, if you if you think about it, the the, uh, Ryan Johnson's inspiration from Dashiell Hammett led to uh, the best modern Star Wars movie in my yep. opinion <laughs> uh, I don't I don't want to hear other people's writing in uh, Star Wars opinions just just uh, I'm not gonna read it but <laughs> well we in the fifth episode now and you already got your hot takes <laughs> <laughs> I think I love the last Jedi and I love the last Jedi too I think it's inarguably the best film of the recent and also I don't want to hear anybody's opinions about it because one of my resolutions after the last Jedi came out is never to fight with anybody about Star Wars yeah Yeah, me too yeah um I I also have been catching up on a podcast uh from our our guest on the Miller's Crossing episode we had Jen Johans on uh she has a great podcast called Watch with Jen at the time we had her on the show I hadn't listened to a lot of, of her stuff at that point, but in the last couple of weeks, I've listened to episodes on Adam McGoyan, uh, Jim Jarmusch, Hal Ashby, and Christopher Cantwell, the writer behind Halt and Catch Fire. 
and I just wanted to give her a shout out because I'm really enjoying that show and I think it's great. So uh, watch with Jen if you're looking for a new movie podcast. I enjoy her on Twitter yeah. a great deal. She, I, I kind of wish that I was back on Twitter so I could enjoy her wonderful movie tweets. Never, never wish, yeah. never wish. But I, I don't want to be. That I is not. Be. You're free. Embrace yep. it. It's one of the things I miss, though. Yeah. Um, have you two by the chance seen the movie? Is that black enough for you? I have not. No, I haven't heard of it. What is it? Um, it's a documentary with Elvis Mitchell, the critic. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's about black exploitation in the 70s. And it's sort of like a documentary slash essay, visual essay on what 70s black exploitation meant to him and what it meant to like cinema as a whole. And that movie totally rewired my brain. It's on Netflix. If um, okay, how how recent is it? It came out last year, like or late last year, like around December. Um, and it totally rewired my brain about how I feel about black exploitation. Like it's not kitschy. Like so, it, um, it's it can come off as kitschy to me, but as I watched it and saw it in the context that he puts it in, um, it's very. It's a very powerful documentary, and he really takes some um, shots at Tarantino um, <laughs> throughout. Um, and okay, which I thoroughly enjoyed actually. And then it got me, and it really, yeah, and it got me on a black exploitation kick, which I'm kind of starting. I started watching Khan Comes to Harlem. Um, by the way, this has nothing to do with the Coen brothers. It's okay. <laughs> and um, which is directed by Ossie Davis. And it's just these two black detectives investigating a crime. Um, and it's just fantastic and funny and just crackles with some good dialogue. And Red Fox is in it. And he's hilarious. Uh, as he is. So I highly recommend that movie because it just, as I know you two are big cinephiles and just completely rewired my brain about how I feel about my exploitation. And it really changed my view. And I've always liked Elvis Mitchell, but now like I, in his writing and I, I'd like to see what he does next. It, it's just great. <laughs> so Okay, so recap the the name of the two films. The documentary is called what? The documentary is called Is That Black Enough For You? And the Aussie Davis film is? Kind of Comes to Harlem. Okay. And that and that's streaming on Pluto TV right now. Great. I'll, I will put those in the show notes so you don't have to remember it if you're listening to the episode. Um, I also didn't want to forget to bring up the, the alternative movie poster that I created for the Hudsucker Proxy. I've been doing one for each episode. Um, this one is a, in the form of a newspaper ad for the Hula Hoop and has some extra, um, some ads on that page for things from the movie. I really had a lot of fun doing this because I got to play around with a lot of uh, period appropriate fonts. And the fonts, I, I think the Hudsucker Proxy has more signage and typography on screen than like any other film I've seen, maybe except for Helvetica, which is a documentary about fonts. <laughs> As as a designer, are you a font nerd? Like, do you is that something that you geek out specifically about when you're watching movies? Yeah, I love fonts. I, I can I can identify the 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 big ones that are used a lot. Like, for instance, 
This has Wes Anderson's favorite font quite a bit, uh, Futura. I, I have to imagine that Wes Anderson watched this movie and had like a religious awakening at some point. I made that observation to somebody that this one felt now in a way that, it w- I mean, having seen all of Wes Anderson's films, like it feels the most Wes Anderson-y. It, it felt very Wes Anderson-y. Like, yeah. in that it felt like this manufactured kind of dollhouse for the Coens to play in, in the way that Wes Anderson makes these sort of dollhouses for his characters to, to play yeah. in, which some people might interpret that as a bad thing. I do not. Well, I think Wes Anderson is, it is a designer at heart. There are so many of his films that are, they just, they're, they're composed. They're very well composed, symmetrical. There's a lot of shapes, mm-hmm. which we'll talk about later when we get into this film. But I, I have to imagine this was an inspiration for him. I haven't seen him say that directly, but it's hard to, it's hard to see this and not think about Wes Anderson. Yeah. I'm, I'm be curious to hear what you have to say about Hudsucker Proxy as somebody who is a designer. And this is such a designed and visually pleasing. And, as you know, there's an aesthetic design to it in a way that there isn't with a lot of other Coen Brothers films. That's very um, intentional and manufactured. And I'm interested to see what you have to as a designer who thinks about this stuff on a deeper level than I or Jason do with like what you think about it. A lot of the artwork in the background, like in the, the boardroom and in Norville's office, um, I, I really struck me and I wanted to, I actually wanted to talk to Chris about that at one point. Um, I also wanted to ask you too, before we bring on our guest, have either of you watched a Frank Tashlin movie like about the director? He used to do Warner Brothers movies and then he did like um well success spoil Rock Hunter and a bunch of Jerry Lewis movies. I don't think I've seen any of his films. Okay. Well the the name's not making the na- okay. name's not ringing. I, I, I haven't either. That's why I'm I, I'm asking you to. <laughs> um I just because so much of this movie is so um, sophisticated, like sophisticated and also goofy, like cartoonish at the same time, especially with what I like to refer to as the plexi- the plexiglass sequence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it just feels like kind of cartoonish, like in that Raising Arizona type yeah. um, thing. And I was trying to think of like who around that time of the 58 59 would like have that aesthetic and looking at what I saw is like Frank Tashlin and just because of his history with Bugs Bunny and Warner brothers and that, and that type of thing. But I've never seen any of his movies and I didn't have time to see uh, one this week. I, I watched a lot of films that were referenced as inspirations for this. And I didn't, that name didn't come up. I did a lot of research okay. too. So I, but I'm, I'm curious. Yeah. Now that you bring it up to see that. Yeah. Like I, I Sturgis and Capra were the first two that came to mind, obviously. But and I've seen quite a bit from those two directors, but I've never seen a Tashlin movie. But I think he has that from I mean, he's directed Jerry Lewis and like a whole bunch of Jerry Lewis movies. The guys like and I know him from his animation work, but I don't know but uh it kind of was the first thing that came to mind as I was kind of digging deeper into this. All right, cool. Something to check out. Um, 
And I would just say, if you're curious about the posters I've been making, just go on Etsy and search for The Life of the Mind podcast or Chris Ayers Creative. You can see those. I'm having a lot of fun with these. I was going to say that Hutsucker Proxy one, I think I told you over email that I do, um, I'm pu- I might pull the trigger and buy that one from you. Well, I'll give you a, a hefty discount. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> it is maybe, I think it's my favorite mm-hmm. one so far. Oh, cool. I think it's my favorite one so far. Not to denigrate, no, it's, not denigrating the others. I just think this one yeah. is like really special. I have no idea what I'm going to do for Fargo. I mean, it's my favorite of all of them, and I feel the pressure. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, I was watching uh, Violent Night last night, and they had a leg and a wood chipper in that movie at one point. And I thought, oh yeah, Fargo. <laughs> I think Fargo is difficult too because the original film poster, or at least the film poster I have on my wall for yeah. Fargo, is really oh, good. Oh yes, I did the cross stitch <laughs> and. Yeah, Hudsucker really doesn't have a good poster, so I imagine it's harder to design a... I would say, as as a non-designer, I would speculate that it's easier to create a cool poster for a movie that never had one. Yeah, the Fargo poster, I had the original theatrical poster in my bedroom, the one with the cross-stitch. I wish I still had that. I have no idea what happened to it. Yeah. That was from the theater. I'm looking yeah. at it, right? I'm looking at mine right now. It's on the wall next to Jaws. I had the snow globe. I had the snow globe too. Oh, that was that originally was that a promotional thing for the movie when it came out? It was a thing that they gave like when VHS was starting to realize that Letterbox was a thing. Um, they offered like a special deluxe edition, and it had a snow globe of um, the wood, the lake, and the wood chipper. Oh wow! The flakes were red and white. That's amazing. Um, take a photo of that and send it to me, and I'll put it on our social media for the Fargo episode. I don't have it anymore. I gave it. Oh, away. you don't have it, Jason. Oh. I I gave it away. I uh, I know I lost, and when I moved from Illinois to Arizona, I gave it to a friend who wanted it and kind of deserved it. So, <laughs> for putting up with me at work for so long. Oh man, <laughs> how are you going to put your kids through college if you don't sell that thing? Uh, I thought money would work, but you know, apparently, <laughs> <laughs> I'm waiting for the, when the book advance comes in for this book I'm going to write one day. Um, I'll, I'll get him through college. <laughs> That's it for introductions. We will be back with our special guest, Chris Wagner, to discuss the Hudsucker Proxy. Welcome back to Life of the Mind, a podcast about the Coen brothers. We are joined by a special guest, Chris Fogner. Chris, welcome. Uh, tell everybody about yourself. Who are you? What do you do? What's your deal? Who am I? That is a complicated question. Um, I am a... Boy, it really is. Um, <laughs> I'm a freelance culture journalist. Um, I was a movie critic at the Dallas Morning News um for many years and uh until i got laid off and now i am (laughs) now i am a freelance culture critic that's gonna be my story one day not quite yet but one day i'm gonna have to introduce myself as such and such until i was laid off not yet but bite your tongue bite your tongue (laughs) i hope not oh no chris is a fantastic uh arts and culture journalist. Uh, I'm I'm the books editor at USA Today. Chris has freelanced for me and written incredible book reviews. He's um, 
incredibly smart about movies too. And you specifically, when I posted on Twitter about doing this podcast, um, you chimed in and immediately said, I'd be down for the Hudsucker Proxy. So I would like to open this up by asking you, why of all the Coen Brothers movies was the Hudsucker Proxy the one that you jumped on? That's a, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I had watched it pretty recently. Um, I So last year, so I write for the Los Angeles Times sometimes, and um, my editor there, Elena Howe, she that it's the, the envelope section. Um, she noticed that there were all these Oscar contenders that had hula hoops <laughs> in them last year. Wait, what were those films? <laughs> See if I can remember what they were. Uh, Power of the Dog. But yeah, I was hula, just going to say that. Had a hula hoop scene with Cody Smith McPhee. And that's probably the only one I can remember. <laughs> but there are like, there's at least one or two others that I actually. Oh, um, Spencer. Had a uh, hula hoop oh. scene. Um, okay, she, yeah. She, Kristen Stewart goes outside and gets her hula hoop on during a moment of great stress. <laughs> I guess that whole movie is a moment of great stress for her. <laughs> um, so I was, her, so, her entire life was a moment yeah, of great stress. Exactly. So I'm like, yeah, I'll write that. That sounds really fun. And the first thing I thought it was the Hudsucker proxy. Um, you know, because of the whole, you know, for kids thing and that is and we'll t- hopefully we'll talk about that scene that amazing scene with the the rogue hula hoops go rolling down the street and the one finds finds that kid and, and changes the trajectory of the whole film um but i saw the i saw Hudsucker proxy when i was in college and i didn't like it at all um i hadn't seen that many screwball comedies um i hadn't seen that many Catherine hepburn films and I just didn't really know what they were trying to do I'm not saying I really do now but um, I was kind of I did not respond well to it Um, and then over the years it's kind of become you know if not one of my favorites my favorite Coen Brother films certainly one of them that I find the most interesting um, and the weirdest and the most meta um, I love the performances, um, and I just think about it a lot differently than I used to. As opposed, most of them I I liked the first time I was, you know, straight out the gate, and this is one that I did not like and that I have come to like. Um, so I think it's a combination of that and the hula hoop. That, uh, I, that did it's it funny because I had kind of I kind of had the opposite experience with Hudsucker Proxy. And with the Coen Brothers films in general, usually it takes a couple of watches of a Coen Brothers film. And I love the Coen Brothers, I do. But even still, sometimes it takes a couple of watches for the movie to click and for me to go, oh, I see what this is. I see what this is doing. Um, Hudsucker, even though I didn't understand it, you know, we were having in the introduction a conversation about how 94 was kind of a big year for all of us because we're round about the same age. Um, very elder millennial young gen x that kind of zennial micro generation and so i was just starting to realize that movies were actually art too by the time this came out and i think it was 14 or 15 and i was spending the night at a friend's house and um i was still awake everybody was asleep 
And my friend's older brother would come home from work. He worked at a, a comic book store that was next to a video store. And so he would constantly come home with weird comic books and weird movies, throw them on the table, go to bed. And I would wander out and see what the older brother had brought in. And I ended up, cons- he's, he's I, this man whose name I don't even remember and maybe talked to twice has shaped so <laughs> much of my pop cultural identity. And I don't think... I don't even know his name. I wouldn't know how to find him if I wanted to, but I love that idea that it's a mystery to you. It is. He would he would just come in and he would just come in and throw these comic books and movies down and I'd wander out and see what he brought. And one of the movies I, I couldn't sleep, I wandered out and I picked up this blockbuster videotape and I'm like, I don't know what the word Hudsucker or proxy means. Sounds weird. Let's put it in. And 14 years old. I didn't know what a screwball comedy was. I didn't, I couldn't have picked a Howard, pointed out a Howard Hawks or a Preston Sturgis film. I didn't understand all their references, but I saw that it was art. I saw that they were doing something really interesting. I liked that the movie didn't look and feel and sound like other movies I was watching at the time. Um, and I was really captivated by it. And I really liked it. I really enjoyed it. And I tried to make my friends watch it when they woke up and they were like, what are you making us watch? I don't understand. But this was a movie that I loved and found very pleasing instantly, even though I didn't understand it. And with time and more movies under my belt, it's a film that I've come to like appreciate on a richer level. And so like Chris A and Jason, what is your what is your relationship with Hudsucker Proxy? What do you think about it? I think Jason's to go because I'm I'm certain Jason's goes back way further than mine. Yeah, I um you're right, uh, probably because I remember, like back when they had HBO for like this brief window of time, they had like one of those HBO first look interstitials, and it was all about this movie, and I didn't know anything about it. Just like, they're showing like these scale models of like Manhattan and Fifty Eight, and all these like goofy comic like things like, and I just thought it was like really funny and then about a year later it came to hbo and i remember this girl i liked was talking about how much she liked this movie <laughs> and uh, and i'm like oh, well now i got now i gotta watch it <laughs> and i watched it and I just that's a little bit more charming and romantic than the boy i had a crush on in high school getting me to watch a clockwork orange this is like the <laughs> kindler gentler version of that <laughs> That was a red flag, by the yeah. way. I like a clockwork orange, but yeah, like yeah. a teenage boy, and it's his favorite movie. It's a little, little bit of a red flag. The question is, did did the did the crush survive a clockwork? The orange? crush survived um, for a very okay. long time. Uh, he's dead now, though. <laughs> okay. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure, it doesn't relate to a clockwork orange, but that that got dark really fast. <laughs> But like you, Barbara, like I knew, I, I had like watched a Frank Capra movie or two prior to this and immediately like, especially as you see like Norville, like walking down the street as he's on his way to the juice and coffee bar, <laughs> like, and you see the faces of like Eisenhower and Buzz and all these guys, it's definitely meet John Doe reminiscent. And I'm like, I know what this is. I know what they're doing. And it's just kind of like something clicked for me. I just immediately loved this movie and what it was trying to do. And I, I just, and it's just funny and zany and zippy and um, cartoonish. 
and at points and I, I just loved it. Um, my, my crush with the girl obviously did not last very long. Uh, but, uh, my love for this movie has never died. <laughs> so, so my relationship with this movie goes back all the way back to the year of 2021. <laughs> it was the first time I saw it. Um, I feel a little shame. I, there, there were two that I had not seen of the 16, 18 films of the 18 films. There were two that I hadn't seen. The one was the other one was lady killers. Um, but I can tell you all about this other movie from 1994 uh, starring Tim Robbins as a character with a, b- a background in business. It's a period piece. It's shot by Roger Deakins. It has a weird name. It flopped at the box office, but later became a classic. And the drama hinges on whether or not Tim Robbins will kill himself. And it's the obviously the Shawshank Redemption. What am I, that was my 94 uh, <laughs> Tim Robbins film, which I that's one of my top 10 favorites. I love it. I never thought of it that way before. Huh. <laughs> you put it into an interesting perspective. You thought about it in a way Stephen King has never even thought about that <laughs> <Yeah>. story. <laughs> I, I think the title, The Hudsucker Redemption, would work. But uh, The Shawshank Proxy <laughs> doesn't work. So. It's got a ring to it. <laughs> but I do remember, like you said, HBO. I do remember this being on HBO that uh, that summer, probably of 95, whenever that came out. So I've always been aware that this film was about the guy who invented the hula hoop um, for decades now. Uh, but I always wondered what it would be like to not know that fact. Well, and it's interesting because it's on the film poster. I think the original film poster at the time has got him holding the hula hoop, which is interesting because they don't reveal mm-hmm. the hula hoop until an hour into the movie. So it would have been like way more interesting not to include the yeah. hula hoop in the... It It's this kind of a strange story arc in general. It's a strange shape. And that's, that is part of the strange shape. And, and that's kind of the... I think that's the great scene in the film, too. And it, they... it really well and it's mm-hmm. what you know, one of the things that we'll get into it was a heavily sam raimi influenced film they they wrote the screenplay in the 80s they didn't yeah. make this till the mid 90s but they wrote the screenplay in the mid 80s while they were living with raimi I mean, we've talked in previous episodes about raimi's dna being visible in their early work um so he shares the screenwriting credit on this film but he was also the second unit director and he shot that sequence right that was what it, that was one of the sequences he shot, mm-hmm. and it's like it's weird because it's arg- it's I think very arguably the best sequence in the entire film, and it wasn't technically directed by the Cohen brothers. He's also in that sequence. He's one of the silhouettes in the the idea room, the admin. Mm-hmm. It sounds like that was kind of his relationship to them in writing the screenplay too. Like they described themselves as like bouncing ideas off of each other and trying to, you know hash out the screenplay and Raimi would come in and disrupt it when they got stuck on something. And, um, but yeah, it's such a kinetic, lively, fast paced, like, and the entire movie is, is a bit screwball, but that sequence in particular has sort of like a kinetic energy to it that feels so Raimi and it's so good. I just, I love the, the, the completely wrapped look on the children's faces as they see this random kid start to do, and he knows all the tricks immediately, which is also hilarious, but they, they look like they're seeing God. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so funny that, that that sequence in the middle is so zippy, but in the beginning when the movie starts, I mean, other than Bill Cobbs and Stilson um, talking about how great the company is doing, sub-franchising. Don't talk to me about sub-franchising. Um, that there's absolutely no dialogue up until 
wearing Hudsucker jumps out the window. Other than Stilson talking about how great the movie is. Like, Norville doesn't talk. Hudsucker doesn't talk. and But then, like, once he jumps out the window, it never stops. So, you know what my big my, my big revelation was this time re-watching it? That's Jim True Frost. Yeah. That was the elevator operator. Yeah. That's Presbaluski <laughs> from The Wire operating the elevator. I had no idea. Yeah, so Presbaluski. Uh... I love Presbaluski. He was also in Singles uh, from 92, I think. Yeah. He's, he's... Yeah, Presbaluski was my favorite character on my favorite TV show. So, that was, yeah. And he's so, he's like, is so good. He's like such a, they have, the Coen brothers have such a gift for finding these like minor character actors who leave such a big imprint. And he's like instant, oh yeah, he belongs here. He belongs in this Coen brothers movie. They're so good at finding those people. And then he turns out to be a complete heel, which is kind of (laughs) sad. Yeah, but he gets Anna, he gets Anna Nicole Smith in her prime. So like, you you know, maybe it's not that sad for him, which that, that was, that was my big takeaway from this watch. Cause I don't think before I had the capacity to process, oh shit, that's Anna Nicole Smith before everything went wrong. Yeah. (laughs) She was good. She was very charming. She wasn't a, uh, Mm -hmm. she wasn't a distracting presence. She delivered her lines well. Um, Why don't you pop them on Clarence? It was hilarious. There's a weird thing about this because when she is introduced earlier in the film, she's trying to do the Zsa, Zsa Gabor accent, which I think is Hungarian. But in the end, when she's with uh, Jim True Frost, she's doing has she has a like a Texas accent, I think, like the Southern accent. Well, that's her like, I think that's her actual. Right. I mean, she was from like Texas. I think that's her actual or close to her actual right. voice. Right. Is that a clue that that last part is like sort of dreamy or unrealistic or um, like the, like the last third of Barton Fink, where it's we're kind of gone. Gone into this weird fantasy. I didn't understand that, or she just couldn't do the accent again, <laughs> and the Cohen brothers didn't want to push it. <laughs> um, yeah. So it, it's such an interesting movie because it. So some context for the Hudsucker Proxy. At this point, the Cohen brothers have made four films. They've all been more or less critical darlings. Um, they have won film festival awards, um, but they're all niche films, right? They're for niche audiences. None of them are huge blockbuster successes, even though they're artistic successes and, and critically revered. They are not, they, they are not for kids. <laughs> <laughs> they are not for kids. But this was, this was supposed to be their big, you know, it's a bit ironic that this was supposed to be their big commercial breakout. The budget was anywhere I, I've seen differing numbers anywhere between 25 to 40 million dollar budget they're working with joel silver um the infamous renowned legendary producer who did the lethal weapon movies die hard predator does these huge blockbuster films many of them action films he's the producer on this movie the largest budget that they have ever worked with by magnitudes and it bombed it bombed critically it was the first of their films to not impress the critics it bombed commercially it's still their worst performing film it didn't even break three million dollars at the box office um and it's interesting because even with time i don't see that there's been a huge critical course correction for hudsucker proxy um it still ranks pretty low in many critics estimation of 
Coen Brothers films. Like, it's not, it hasn't appreciated this critical course correction. So we all love it, though. So are we, do we just have better taste than everybody? Or like, what is it about this film that doesn't connect? I feel like it's kind of ripe for rediscovery because... I rediscovered it not too long ago, and I've, I've just gotten the impression that not a lot of people have gone back to it, that they've, you know, moved on with further Coen Brothers movies and kind of left this one, eh, okay, there's that one. Um, but yeah, it did not get good reviews, um, and it was considered kind of cold and, and mechanical, um, and, you know, it's kind of an exercise, I suppose. Um, but... I have a feeling it would be seen differently now. That's just just a hunch on my part, and maybe I'm maybe that's colored by my own experience of seeing it differently now and really enjoying it. I'm curious for the Chris's. Um, both of you have said, like I know Chris A didn't re, didn't discover this gem until two years ago, and Chris V, you said that you didn't like it at first. I'm curious, what didn't you like about it? I just didn't, I didn't get it. I was, you know, and I, and I was in college already, you know, I had, I had seen, you know, I really liked the Coen brothers. I was studying film. Um, and it just struck me as kind of those words I was using before, kind of cold, kind of, uh, disjointed. Um, I think I kind of maybe saw what it was trying to do, but I just didn't appreciate what it was trying to do. Um, and um, and I might not have, might just not have been in the mood. Yeah, that and, happens sometimes. Uh, yeah. This one is a very specific mood. Yeah, and I didn't go back to it. Like I said, um, I moved on. It moved on, <laughs> and then this hula hoop thing came up for me. <laughs> And I was like, wow, this movie's actually really interesting. Um, so, like like the hula hoop itself, it exactly. came back. <laughs> yeah. Full fa- circle. The fad returned. You I went did, full like, circle. Like the frisbee or the uh, hula hoop. Lots of circle imagery in uh, the Hud Sucker lots of Lots of circle imagery, lots of like Wheel of Fortune energy yeah. where tides turn very quickly. And, you know, they've got that. The clock tower is circular that keeps coming up over and over again in the design. They've got the the circle of the coffee cup mm-hmm. leaving its imprint yeah, on yeah. the on the you know lots of lots of things coming full circle. The circle switching fortunes, very much in the DNA. I said yeah, yeah. I said I said sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> the way Norville describes karma, yeah. or as he puts it, karma. karma. <laughs> Yeah, no, totally. It's the big wheel thing that gives everybody what they deserve. <laughs> totally. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, there are still things that don't work for him. That that scene with with uh, Jennifer Jason Lee and Bill Cobbs in the factory or whatever the hell that is. What what the oh yeah f is that? I mean, it's like. So there are still moments and sequences where I'm like, this you probably should have cut this. Um, but there aren't many of those, but that's definitely one of them. The, the whole bill, I really, I love Bill Cobbs. Um, the whole Bill Cobbs character did not work for me. I guess he's kind of like a dry run for Sam Elliott in the big Lebowski. In that's absolutely what it, that's absolutely what it felt like to me. Like they were still ironing out the kinks to, uh, 
eventually arrive at the Sam Elliott character that yeah. Big Lebowski gave. And nothing again, again, I'm a big Bill Cobbs fan. This is not, that has nothing to do with him. It's just that character and how he's used. They hadn't perfected the art of the, the sort of narrator. I mean, that's a device that they use throughout their movies time and again, having that sort of like distant narrative presence and they really yeah. Yeah. nailed it with the Big Lebowski. And then it's got that, that scene with, with Cobbs and, and Lee, it's got this sort of like Kafka sort of vibe or Fritz Lang. It's like, what is, well, this, and it is, what is this doing it here? Is, <laughs> it is such a weird movie. I mean, you talked about it, you know, being, it's a little bit schizophrenic in terms, even though I love the style and I love what they're doing. It doesn't make a lot of sense if you dig into it. Like they're doing this. They've got this like Preston Sturges like hero in Tim Robbins, who's in this kind of Frank Capra scenario on a set that looks like it was designed by Fritz Lang by way of <laughs> Terry Gilliam, and it's hyper hyper stylized and set in 1959. So it's you know it's it's all these things that don't even belong of the same era narratively or visually. Yeah mesh together but you know it that's what makes the movie so distinctive and interesting yeah, too so like it's, it's part of its glory in a way mm-hmm. i i always thought of that scene as a setup for the end when bill cobbs and al wishes get into mm-hmm. that fist fight and stop the gears from turning um it's just to sort of give the audience a primer about why the clock does what it does. I think what the big problem with me for that scene is the trope um, of the um, mythical uh, Negro um, and uh, uh, Bill Cobb's like, he's like, sir, like the, um, I, I, I feel weird even talking about being white, but it just, it, it just kind of like gives me the heebie jeebies about how, like his character is like this, you know, mystical like, guy. Like that, the legend of Bagger Vance or something. That, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like Or or the Green Mile, the Stephen yeah, King. Yeah, the Green Mile. Yeah. Stephen God. King. I can I can always relate it back to Stephen King. <laughs> yeah. That that's to, that's something I actually noticed. One of the things I noticed this time around is that trope, which I understand was like very popular like in Preston Sturgis movies, but it just really rang weird for me this time. I'm like, oh my God, like, is that what they're doing? And yeah, well, in 2020, by 2020, by 2023, like it feels a little, I mean, it's a lot more obvious and sort of bad feeling than it would have been in 1994 or in 1930s, the era of movies that they're sort of evoking. Yeah, I'm not sure at what year we started to recognize that trope and, and recognize you shouldn't do that. Yeah. You know, if, if a movie comes out today, you can't do that. Yeah. But um, for me, and I have a really uh, skewed way of looking at this because it's it's all new to me. One, as a designer, I love the design of this movie. I love all the uh, meticulousness of the set design. The fact that they built this whole interior, you know, for the for the opening shot for the pushing in on the clock tower. Yeah. They built all this stuff on a soundstage. They built New York. It's really amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, my other my other lens of looking at this, and we referenced this back on our Miller's Crossing episode, is that around that era, the Coen brothers were briefly in the running to direct the Batman movie that Tim Burton directed. 
which is another film that they you know built this with the entirety of Gotham City in a soundstage. And I there are so many aspects in this that could be a Batman movie. Uh, even like the the fight scene at the, in the clock tower is basically you know the Joker and Batman fight in the bell tower. Um, Paul Newman could easily if I was casting a period piece Batman movie I'd cast Paul Newman. I think there's just so many little things that when you look at it that way if you watch it again think of it as uh, um, DC Comics too even like the 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 journalists there's this bit of Perry White uh, mm-hmm. Lois Lane Clark Kent thing going on on there too. Uh, even the character in His Girl Friday was an inspiration for Lois Lane uh, and also inspiration for Amy Archer, the Jennifer Jason Lee character in this. So that's kind of the lens I was viewing it from. Um, I only saw my, like, well, see, I've seen two Capra films at this point. One was uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington back in middle school. And I only watched It's a Wonderful Life for the first time about last month, right before Christmas. Oh, well. What? So, I know, I know. I know. <laughs> Chris! You can... You can make fun a of you want a to. great and misunderstood film. It is so dark and beautiful. It's one of my favorite movies. It's one of my and favorite movies too. And it's not about Christmas. It's about. It's not at all about Christmas. I wrote a column about how it's a wonderful life is about gratitude. And that's. I mean, mm-hmm. it's about a lot of things, but I think it, thematically, ultimately, it's about gratitude, and it's dark as hell. Yeah, it's way darker than its reputation. I mean, it, when you get a reputation as a Christmas movie, everybody thinks you're warm and cuddly, and that movie is dark as hell. And Frank Camper's misunderstood as a director, too. I mean, if you're going to go down yeah. that route. And back when I, I know we're not talking about It's Wonderful Life, but back when I was drinking, I would have torn it up in Potter's Bill, baby. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. The library's open late. The bar makes strong-ass drinks. <laughs> Sign me up, man. Go get drunk and write in the library all night. Yeah, well, exactly. Speaking of how dark It's a Wonderful Life is, I know this is like a bit of a tangent, but have any of you seen the SNL skit where they show the alternate ending? So funny. Of It's a Wonderful Life? It's so awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So in the alternate ending, um, like they realize that Mr. Potter is behind everything and the townspeople go with pitchforks and beat the shit out of him. <laughs> they throw him out of his wheelchair and stomp him on the ground. <laughs> so great. It is. It's awesome. Anyway. Um, but- Hudsucker Proxy. I actually watched seven different films for this between the between the uh, 40s and the 60s, I think, that were referenced in this just for the background because I was missing a lot of it. You watch the whole films? Yeah, I watch. Here, I'll run down real quick. Okay. Uh, Singing in the Rain. Greatness. His Girl Friday. Greatness. Uh, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. Greatness. Sweet Smell of Success. Great. Oh, that's one of my favorite movies. Uh, the Miracle of Morgan's Creek, which I did yeah. not like at all. <laughs> I actually oh. <laughs> It's a Wonderful Life and Meet John Doe. And then I think three, three of those are Capras and one's Preston Surges. Have you seen Sullivan's Travels? Mm-hmm. I haven't seen that. That's the one I will definitely need to watch before Fantastic. we get to Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Yeah. Oh, you need to go down a full Sturgis. Yeah. I went on a full Sturgis thing last year, and I was like, it really clicked for me this time in a way that they had that, before. That run, he had a run of six or seven movies, which is, I think, pretty much unparalleled, certainly in comedy. Um, but he was just on fire. It is, it is fire. And you brought up the sweet smell of success, and one of the things that I brought to my attention now that we just went through talking about Barton Fink is that the name of the newspaper columnist played by Burt Lancaster in that is J.J. Hunsecker, which sounds a lot like mm-hmm. Hudsucker. Yeah. 
And it was a film that was co-written by Clifford Odets, who was the fictional counterpart the Coens tormented in Barton Fink. So there are all these right. like callbacks to things they had done before and things that they're perpetually interested in coming back up, echoing through this film. I, I could spend the rest of this podcast quoting Sweet Smell of Success, yeah. but I won't. <sighs> I, I like that one a lot. That's also very dark. I did not know what to expect. Very. I, the only one I watched was uh, Mr. Deeds. You're you're more committed. You're more committed to this. Than I am. I'm a bit underemployed at the moment, so uh, I'm I'm very impressed with your research work ethic. I'm having a lot of fun with this. Yeah, I've I think I got into Sweet Smell of Success because of this movie, um, and it's now one of, also one of my very very favorite movies of it of all time. I just I mean that's a great legacy for a yeah. film if it can get you interested to discover and fall in love with the sweet smell of success, mm-hmm. then you're a pretty good movie in my book. Um, the sets, you, you, you brought up the sets, Chris, and the sets were something that I appreciated on a level this time that I don't think I'd ever appreciated as much on a, on a watch before. And I think part of it's just, I'm so nostalgic for practical effects, not just nostalgic for practical effects, but like I miss it with I miss practical effects with my whole heart and every time practical effects show up in a film I get this rush of adrenaline and so it was I did did something to me bodily to be like oh I could reach you could touch those those are real sets you're making miniatures they were 124 scale they were large enough for everybody to walk through the pictures of these sets and like how they filmed the various things are incredible if ever you know there are some great articles about how they designed these sets and, and lots of um, images of the Coen brothers and the visual design people and the, the special effects people and the actors, you know, positioned within these sets. And it's just so fascinating. And like, I just miss it. I just miss that. It, it feels so different than a cityscape design in CGI does. And it's just, it's, it's such, it's an example of just the love and time and craft that they put into their films. I mean, it's such attention to detail and such imagination. Um, and that's, you know, that's them. I always think of how ephemeral something like that is that you would go to the trouble of building something that ornate and then it'll be torn down as soon as the next production has to come in. I don't know if you guys have ever been involved with building a theater set. Then you, you start to you fall in love with the thing that you've made, and then it's up for six weeks, and then you tear it down. And it's just it's for the sake of art. But you know what I saw? You know, you brought up the Batman, the Tim Burton Batman movies. I was just um, this last summer. I went to the Academy Museum um, in Los Angeles, the Academy of Motion Pictures, and they had the matte paintings from i believe batman returns on display these big as tall as a person cityscape kind of matte paintings that they shot the action you know in front of in batman returns and yeah. they're gorgeous they're paintings they're 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 pieces of art like you 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 said craftsmanship chris and it's it, you could see the craftsmanship and the artistry on display you know which isn't to say that CGI computer generated effects aren't also craftsmanship or art, but they're so overworked. They're, you know, they're just different. They're just different. And by chance, have any of you seen the documentary Light and Magic? Yes, I love that so much. What is it called? It's called Light and Magic. It's the story of ILM, and it's a Disney oh, wow. Plus. It's a Disney Plus I've, joint. I have not seen that. 
Yeah, and there's this whole episode, or most of the episode, where they talk about the transition from practicality to CGI, and it all takes place on Jurassic Park. And to see, um, like, Phil Tippett realize that his job is, like, being lost, like, on that on that set. Um, it's so disheartening. Like, it's, it's a gut punch to watch that part because especially if especially now if you've seen um his new movie mad god like he just kind of like i have no place here anymore i i yeah um and i'm like barb too like i miss that i miss that so much that practical effect and like i'm even watching the fablemans when he's trying so hard to recreate that train crash in the beginning of the movie um Mm -hmm. from and how much like mm-hmm. he's destroying the model train set he got for Christmas for the sake of art <laughs> um, to recreate something that he that he loved. Um, I miss that that attention to care, you know, that attention to detail that is just kind of gone now with like yeah. Versus that we'll fix it in post kind yeah. of mentality where you don't have to figure it out in the camera. We'll mm-hmm. just fix it in post. As you think about like that. That opening shot in Hudsucker, it's just amazing to behold. Like watching that, like on my now I have a huge ass TV compared to what I watched just before in '94, and just seeing the attention to detail on that just blows me away. I'm gonna tell my I'm gonna tell my very very tangential and short ILM related story. So when I was in college, my a friend of mine interned at Lucas Ranch and um, we went to see this movie that he produced called Radio Land Murders. <laughs> it was a piece of shit. I, I, I'm familiar with this movie. <laughs> so we go to see, that's the big preview at Lucas Ranch and I'm going there with my friend who interns there. We're sitting there, we're like, oh my God, this is so bad. But Lucas is sitting like real close to us. We're like, we can't leave because she works there. We're like, we got to wait till he leaves. <laughs> And finally, he got up and left. <laughs> Jason, I will second your recommendation on Light and Magic. I, I really love that that show. As I'm going through sort of a professional existential crisis, being a creative person, and not finding the right environment for myself for, you know, for full-time employment, I love the idea of this group of people pulling together and revolutionizing cinema special effects. And they were basically living at this place, mm-hmm. like constantly working all the time. Just the idea that everyone's pulling in the same direction and believing in what you're making um, and having that creative energy that's like a very rare thing. I absolutely love that idea. So yeah, I loved um, I loved watching Light and Magic. So what do you guys think of the fact that Paul Newman agreed to do this role? I, I, it's, one of my, it's one of my favorite things about the movie, not just because he's <laughs> Paul Newman, you know, the, mm-hmm. kind of a legend. He's, he's, you know, one of the most overtly liberal figures you know rest in peace he's not with us anymore in the film industry and he's playing this complete soulless corporate shark and he just he really buys into it just like a hundred and ten percent and he's freaking paul newman yeah i love i love paul newman with my whole heart he is my favorite my favorite actor i would say 
So he can do no wrong in my eyes. I've never disliked Paul Newman in a movie. Um, I did think it was interesting, like looking up trivia for the movie, that uh, one of the rumors is that the Coen brothers had wanted Clint Eastwood initially. I saw that. (laughs) Which like, you know, that fits rapacious sort of grizzled capitalist kind of vibe uh, versus, you know, very liberal, um, charitable Paul Newman uh, in the kind of fascistic head of the corporation role but i mean it 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 fits in with the idiosyncratic charm of the film that they have paul newman in that role i guess if you put it in the capra context he's sort of the edward arnold character in this he's he's just like the the target of all whatever their their interrogation of capitalism here which i guess they denied they were trying to do but come on i had read he was hesitant to do it because he isn't, he didn't think he was good at comedy, because he hadn't done that many comedies. And I'm thinking to myself, uh, sir, uh, Butch and Sundance, <laughs> though technically, you know, uh, has comedic aspects. Slapshot is he's he's very funny in a lot of movies that aren't necessarily straight genre comedies. Right? Yeah, he's, but he's got a very good comedic sense of timing. Mm-hmm. Did this come out before or after Nobody's Fool? It's right around the same. I wouldn't say this was before. Era. Maybe it was before. before. I think it's before. Because I remember I went to go see Nobody's Fool like on my 17th or 18th birthday. They both came out in 1994. So okay. Oh, okay. It would have been within months of each other. So I read this thing about Newman and his he had some body <laughs> problems. He thought he had knobby knees. So in that scenes where he's being fitted uh, for his trousers, he's he's subconscious about his knees, which is like objectively one of the most beautiful humans on the planet. I would reassure him about his knees. I would do whatever it <laughs> yeah. took to reassure him about <laughs> his knees. <sighs> he got the double stitch. Tangents in this movie. There are all these like weird sort of pocket scenes that don't need to be there, but are so funny. Like right. the 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 double stitch, his pants, whether or not they're gonna fail him as he's hanging out of the building. That scene is so great. It's so unnecessary. It's so great. It'll last um, forever. Got <laughs> <laughs> Mister Musburger. He's so nice. I give him the double stitch anyway. So. <laughs> He was, he was really the first movie star to appear, like, you know, cemented, like, real movie star. They worked with a lot of character actors who would later become bigger stars, but this is the first time that they are in the room with a movie star. I mean, like, legit, all t- an, an all-timer star. Like, an all-timer. You don't get bigger mm-hmm. than Paul Newman. So there was also, there was also talk that, that, there was also talk that Tom Cruise was being considered oh, Jesus. For, for the Norville role. That Joel Silver, um, who, again legendary producer of movies where things blow up a lot wanted uh tom cruise as the lead. <laughs> um i think movie. it needs it needs a fresh face like like tim robbins in this thing um he's he's perfect f- for what what this movie needs him to be um i've kind of wrestled with like what is the nature of this of this norval barnes character it's it's a little confusing to me i mean he's kind of again i keep putting things into the capra context which I, I mean it's more than that but he's you know he, he's kind of the he's the simpleton who gets corrupted mm-hmm. on some level um you know he ends up firing what's his what's his name buzz yeah the jim true jim true frost and 
you know, he, he kind of becomes the, you know, part of the monster um, and gets his ideals back. And that's, that's, you know, kind of, you know, the, you know, Mr. Deeds is tempted and Mr. Smith maybe is tempted a little bit. Um, they don't, I don't know. I mean, Norville is a little more, gets, becomes a little more craven to me than either of those those characters, or or even you know John Willoughby and and uh, meet John Doe. Um, it's funny to me. It's like a Capra grinder. It's like Capra, you know, roulette wheel mm-hmm. almost of all all of these different films and characters and references, and then the Sturgis part as well. Well, he's, um, he's this striver who's seeking to rise above his station, right? There's like a lot of class division and wealth division in the film and he's the striver yeah. who's who's seeking to to rise above his station you know he, he didn't go to the most prestigious <laughs> business school Muncie business <laughs> college Muncie come on go eagles, go eagles. <laughs> um starting out in a, in a basement that looks like it belongs in the movie brazil and um what's interesting though is like he does become corrupted he is not you know as cherubic as his face would entail. But they give, like, they give him a happy ending. Like, it's interesting that, you know, it's so different from a serious Coen Brothers movie because I feel like a character like Norville Barnes, they would punish mercilessly and they don't really punish him for his ambition like they do in the more serious movies, right? Like... They they like him. They do. He's very like... Well, look at his face. How do you not like Norville? This is kind of a nice movie. It's an it's an anomaly within their filmography because it's this is I think one of the few, maybe the only one that doesn't have gun violence in it. You know, there's not. It's it's just it's a nice movie, and it's it's a weird thing when you're a teenager. I'm probably too cynical if I've seen this when I'm like 14. I'm probably too cynical to appreciate the arc of the story. Uh, now I now I'm less cynical and more optimistic, and I think I like this much better in my 40s than as a teenager. If I may be so bold uh, to make a uh, something that I picked up on this viewing. Uh, and I think it's because of what we talked about with Barn Fink is that if we were to think of Norville maybe as a stand-in for the Coens themselves and Sidney Musburger or just Corporation Journal as the Joel Silver taking their ideas on a big corporate wide level failing and thinking that they're going to fail at, which they ultimately did, but hoping that they get the second chance, which they got and succeeded. Um, that's kind of how I thought about it. I was like, as Norville is like this stand in for their, the Cohen's career. Like they did get on the independent circuit or the Muncie school of business administration, go Eagles. <laughs> um, and they go to the big city, meet Joel silver. They said they want to make a, they want to make a. He wants to make a Cohen brother get that Cohen brothers feeling. He's making making a deal with the devil. <laughs> yeah, because Silver. I mean, I, Silver like has this had this reputation back then of like just doing some wacky ass shit to like action movies. Um, I mean, he's the man resp- who's partially responsible for Xanadu. Um, <laughs> so which is a funny horrible movie you know so good it's bad movie um and the fact that they're able 
they probably, I think probably the perception was they were going to get corrupted by it, but it's amazing they still turn out this very Cohen-esque product at the end of the day. I, am, I, am I off base with that? I mean, I think it's one of their most eccentric films. Um, you know, they make a lot of eccentric movies, but I think this one is right up there with, in terms of strangeness. So I think it is very much their own thing. You know, there's not much, you know, except for maybe Paul Newman. There, there ain't much Hollywood about the Hudsucker proxy. <laughs> J- J- Jason, I can, I think can see your point. Like they, they were given money for this. Yeah. It's like $25 million budget, right? They, they survived the studio system mm-hmm. and didn't lose their values and, and still came out of it. Okay. You might've been tempted, you know, but the, in the end, they, they went right back to making what they love for, yeah. for a small budget and being rewarded for it with Fargo. Mm-hmm. And that's ultimately the movie that got them broke out, that broke them out. Right. They thought it was going to be this. Like Joel Silver saw something in them and wanted to give them a chance to really make a hit. And they made their their worst performing movie. And and Fark, Fargo was the one that they thought wouldn't make an impact. That it was a film that was going to be for a very, very niche audience. Like who cares about something that pitch black set in, you know, the wilds of, of Minnesota, like... They, they didn't think that that one was going to be their breakout. They thought this one was going to be their breakout. But I do mm-hmm. like that, you know, Jason, I do like that read of, is there something of the Coen brothers in Norville, this person who comes up with one really great idea, and then they're exposed for a fraud. I mean, not that the Coen brothers only had one. I mean, they made four great movies before this, but somebody who's like feeling pressured to create and keep justifying themselves as an idea person. And then finally he has the, the Frisbee in the end, you know, I kind of like that as a read and that might explain why they're so, but I don't know. They weren't gentle on themselves in Barton Fink. They were very yeah. <laughs> gentle I mean, on themselves in Barton Fink. A sweet honey of an idea like blood simple doesn't come along every day. <laughs> um, <laughs> or just, um, and I just love how, how just the naivete of Norville just in general, like put, having this idea hitting his shoe and sharing it with anyone who like will listen. Like, here's my idea. So as you can see, I'm not going to be down here for very long and no one can see it. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's just like dumb ambition. Yeah. Um, I always think of Norville. It's like Conan O'Brien getting the late show <laughs> coming from nowhere. It's just like this tall, like good natured guy. And I'm like, why? Who the hell is this guy? I, 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 I kind of struggle a little bit with Norville because sometimes he seems smarter than everybody, but then he reveals he's actually kind of dumb. Sometimes he's sweet and sometimes he's a little bit mean. Um, I know he's it's a complicated character, but there are times when I think he's on top of things and then he'll reveal himself to, to just be clueless. I was just thinking about this. One of, one of the scenes where he shows the drawing of the hula hoop, the circle to somebody, and they kind of look at it quizzically and he flips it over like it's upside down (laughs) it's like no now he's now you see it i think there are very few people who were were able to go into this film not knowing us about the hula hoop maybe the people who saw it premiere it was the first film that premiered at Cannes film festival um i'd always known it was even even some markets i think in france it was called mr hula hoop because the hudsucker proxy makes even less sense in a foreign language uh, he was the hula hoop was in the original trailer in '94. I saw it blind. I saw it blind because I just picked up a blockbuster, like you know, a, a blind blockbuster tape, and put it in because the title sounded. Yeah, funny. that's great. I, 
I, I envy that experience because I think the joke of him holding up that circle and saying this is going to be like revolutionizing business. Um, you can project. It's so profound. You can project so many things onto it, but it's so simple when it's revealed how how simple and stupid it is. I love it. So what do we what do we think what do we think about Jennifer Jason Lee? I was just gonna say we have not talked about Jennifer Jason Lee, who I want to talk about because I loved her in this. Um, she very much evoking this kind of like Rosalind Russell and his girl Friday fast talk and newspaper gal, and it's just like maybe my own personal bias talking, but like those characters really, really work for me. <laughs> and very, very Catherine Hepburn too. Extremely. Very, very Catherine Hepburn kind of accent thing going on. So I'm wondering if, I'm wondering if they basically said, okay, player like a thirties screwball comedy heroine, because she commits to it, you know, so purely um, and I, that's one of the things that threw me the first time I saw it. I was like, what is she doing? <laughs> um, and now I see what she's doing. Um, but she does not flag from the task. Um, she does it all the way, 100%, every scene, um, every line. And um, yeah, she's fantastic. I think she's great. I've so, never thought she's gotten the credit she deserves, just in general. Not no, not just for this film. I don't think she's in gotten. General. I don't think she's gotten the credit or the career that she deserves. Yeah. Like, it needed to be bigger. It deserved to be bigger. I think she, I, I think she has another act coming. I hope so. I, I, yeah, maybe firm, so. I, I firmly believe that if she wants it. She also seems kind of like the I don't give a fuck type, which is she which really is does, which cool. is part of her appeal. Yeah. I know that she was one of the first that one of the first people they tested for this, and they just loved her immediately. But then they had to go through the motions of like auditioning other actors. Yes. So I, I think it's funny that she brought out uh, that she beat out Bridget Fonda because I associate those two so closely for because of single white female mm-hmm. uh, right. beat out Winona Ryder, beat out Nicole Kidman. Um, Winona Ryder would actually go on to play this basically same role in the Adam Sandler remake of Mr. Deeds, where she plays the journalist. So there's a connection there. I could see Nicole Kidman doing something really interesting with this role, but it would have been distracting. Like, would have been a lot different. Yeah, a lot different. It's also, it's it's really fun to see her beat the shit out of Bruce Campbell too, <laughs> like over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> so in in the part, obviously the the fast talking was inspired by uh, His Girl Friday, um, which I think is. I think that's been an inspiration for a lot of the Coen Brothers dialogue. They do it in Miller's Crossing. They do it in Barton Fink. Um, at the time, Howard Hawks was trying to literally break the record for most dialogue per minute in a film at that time. And the only one, the, the one, the previous record holder was a previous adaptation of, of the same source material. So I thought that was really interesting. But just the, the His Girl Friday style of dialogue has permeated and just they've, they've kept that. I think it's become a signature Coen Brothers thing, especially in their comedies. I'm curious, and you guys may have talked about this before, because I'm obviously new to this. I want to know what everybody's favorite Coen Brothers movie is. Oh, yeah. No, we can talk about that. Okay. Yeah, we, we can yeah, talk we can, about that. We can put a pin in it if that's better. No, no, I'm happy um, to talk about But I'm, um, I'm really curious, yeah. though. So my favorite Coen Brothers movie, and we'll see if this holds up, as we do this rewatch and discussion, but I think it's a serious man and I'm not sure I'm able to articulate why it's a serious man, but it's the one I come back to and think about the most. And it's the one that 
I feel like I would have the hardest time explaining to somebody. And so it's it's like a little puzzle box. I'm always like, I'm always worrying over a serious man. Um, I think it's really a, a, a beautiful and confounding and unsettling film. I also think uh, their adaptation of No Country for Old Men is... It's really boring to say, like, oh, the one that won Best Picture is one of my favorites. But, like, right after I've seen No Country for Old Men, my favorite is No Country for Old Men. But most days it's a serious man. I need to go back to a serious man. I love it. My top three, Fargo. It's the first one I saw. It's probably the most straightforward and simple one, probably. But I just I can't help but love Fargo. Uh, no Country for Old Men and Raising Arizona are my, my top three. Yeah, Raising Arizona would be my number three. Yeah, Chris and I are the same, but in different order. Raising Arizona is still my favorite. So yeah, I mean, I I love Fargo. It sounds it's predictable and boring. I love Blood Simple. The one that I was really really affected by, and that I think maybe I just don't think it gets enough credit, is True Grit. Oh, I love True Grit. It's yeah, a, True Grit's great. It is a it is a perfect adaptation of a perfect book. I thought it was so much better than the John Wayne. Oh version. God, yes. Um, it just was on another level and it really tapped into that material. I think that might be my favorite Bridges performance. Have you read the book? Have you read True Grit? I have not read Charles Portis and I really, really want to. I could read True Grit on an endless loop for the rest of my life and never get never get bored of it. And what, what makes the Coen Brothers True Grit so good is that book is written in this just indelible first person voice that girl's voice is just so striking and well written and what the coen brothers did so well was capture that voice in cinema which is what the john wayne movie does not even attempt to do and it it might be their least ironic Mm -hmm. film and i don't know if that has something to do with my appreciation for it just that it's it's so different i just found it very i was very emotionally involved in it and it had everything you know that it looked fantastic and the production design and the sets and the costumes and everything and like i said i think um you know i i think bridge i think he's better in that than he was in crazy heart <laughs> um, I think it's, which he's also very good i think in. it's the most i've ever liked matt damon too like they they made well they made him this like very <laughs> charismatic like side character actor and i was like oh is this what he was it's kind of like brad pitt when you see brad pitt in a in a weird sort of character actor supporting Mm -hmm. role you're like oh no this is what you're good at you're not supposed to be a leading man that's (laughs) how i felt with matt damon in that i'll fight with you on brad pitt though because i think i think i think he's a (laughs) i think he's the i think brad i think brad pitt's the last great movie i think he's a yeah i can i sure that's an argument he is a movie star he's a movie star he does helm a movie well and carry a movie well but i he sparkles when he's playing a, a weird supporting character in something that's when he really shines yeah. for me i i recently watched burn after reading uh while i was in a hotel room and brad pitt being the goofy son of a bitch he is in that movie um is definitely the way i kind of like him in the most and someone i love him in that someone reminded me that he was in um, Johnny Suede with that big hairdo, like in 1991. And I forgot all about that movie. And I just remember how weird he is in that movie. Just so bizarre. And I remember how much I liked him in that movie. Even though it's a leading role for him. But it's just this like, small, independent movie. 
we has big hair and he just shined in that. Um, did you get, did you guys see bullet train? I have. So I, I thought it was, I thought it was okay. I thought it was, there wasn't much there, mm-hmm. but I thought every time he was on the screen, I was like, wow, he's, he's carrying this thing. He really was. No, I didn't like that. I didn't like that movie. The only thing that was carrying it for me was how hot Aaron Taylor Johnson was as that like cockney brawler and spoiler alert for bullet train. Don't listen to the next 25 seconds if you don't want to know this but um his character dies with 45 minutes left of the film and i stopped watching oh. it and i had to c- talk myself into like going back and finishing it the next day because i'm like the only thing that was holding me on was how hot Aaron taylor johnson was in it well the rumor is is that aaron taylor johnson's your next james bond <laughs> really i mean that works fine sure uh so i this looks good for you if you want to get into bond movies well it's <laughs> I hope to be one of these people who really grow into themselves in their 40s and finally come into <laughs> their, their, their talents recognized finally, yeah. their confidence. Uh, guys like John Hamm or like Morgan Freeman. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to bring it back real quick to Hudsucker and then we can close out. But I just wanted to end with uh, a walk down memory lane with some excerpts of reviews uh, that came out at the time. Um, so pretty critically... Not necessarily reviled, but unappreciated, let's say. Roger Ebert gave it two stars. I always love going back to see what Roger Ebert thought about a movie when it came out. And he said, The problem with the movie is that it's all surface and no substance. Not even the slightest attempt is made to suggest the film takes its own story seriously. Everything is style. Um, Todd McCarthy of Variety wrote, The Hudsucker Proxy is no doubt one of the most inspired and technically stunning pastiches of old Hollywood pictures ever to come out of the new Hollywood. But a pastiche it remains, as nearly everything in the Coen's latest and biggest film seems like a wizardly but artificial synthesis, leaving a hole in the middle where some emotion and humanity should be. And then... Basically, everybody's making the exact same argument in the reviews. Dessen Howe of the Washington Post, the last one I'm going to read. Cohen's just spinning. The Cohen's are just spinning wonderkind wheels. Under his steerage, Robin's overly naive country boy, Newman's Mussolini-style capitalist, and Lay's hyperactive journalist are just sophomorically re-engineered archetypes down from the rhythmic script books of Frank Capra, Preston Sturges, and Howard Hawks. Missing in this film's performance is a sense of humanity. The crucial ingredient in the movie's Hudsucker is clearly trying to evoke. Hudsucker isn't the real thing at all. It's just proxy. Ouch. I think it's all fair. I mean, yeah, I still like it. The thing is, I, yeah, <laughs> I think that's that was my reaction too. Was like, okay, well, I don't necessarily disagree with any of this, but I still love watching it. But, and the funny thing is, is that they said the same thing about Miller's Crossing too. And as I watched Miller's Crossing again, I could kind of see where they were coming from. My opinion has not changed of this movie. I I still love it. And I love, I think it has heart. Um, like I laugh and I get emotion. And I'm, I'm, I'm rooting for Norville every step of the way. Even though like it goes on these weird tangents and, uh, you know, with the booby hatch and 
the double stitch, <laughs> these other things. Um, and the, and the dance sequence. I, I just, I love it so much, even though it's overstuffed with these tropes that they, um, that these critics seem to, uh, think it's, it hinders it. I, I sort of agree too. I, I, I think you have to bring your own heart to it maybe to, to, to project something onto it. I, I, I really love the end uh, where, where he's, the time stops and, uh, Moses says, I don't know, I'm not supposed to do this, but you, you got a better idea. <laughs> I just love the meta, like breaking the fourth wall of that. I love that when Waring Hutsucker comes down as an angel, he's playing a ukulele rather than a harp. Like that's the, that's a very Coen yeah. Brothers uh, kind of folk music thing. It's just a fad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The whole, like the hula hoop, spin, his, his halo is spinning. There's so many clever things. The more you watch it, you pick up. There's like so much depth and just the small things that the choices that they make mm-hmm. that some of it's intellectual. Some of it's re- you rewarded when you want to follow it, to follow and do the research and understand where all, all it came from. That's rewarding. And I realize you're not going to get that. If you're a film reviewer in the 90s, you're not going to go to Google and find, you know, all these references or understand where all this is coming from. So this is much, much better viewed 30 years later where you can understand where all the influences are and appreciate it for that. But I think the movie also works if you don't understand all those references, because when I was 14, I didn't understand it. And I still just found it funny and charming and strange and off kilter. And, you know, I I do, you know, I know, I know Chris had a different experience of it where it was kind of the opposite, where it wasn't working because he didn't understand it and, you know, took some time and some film personal film education to be able to come back and appreciate it. But I, I do think it is possible to enjoy this movie without any of that framework because I did it when I was 14. And I'm guessing somebody like Ebert, he probably got all the references. Oh, yeah. He still didn't like it. Oh, yeah. He, he didn't care. Right. So. so I don't think knowing the references is the is the magic key that opens up the movie for you because all of these film critics are longtime film writers, very knowledgeable film people. They they yeah. knew all this stuff and it didn't work for them. I mean, perhaps knowing all that stuff was part of the reason why it didn't work for them because they could see so clearly what it was the Coen brothers were doing and that sapped it of some of its magic, maybe. Yeah, I've had that experience where I watch something that other people love when I'm like, I see the I see the ingredients here. I know what you're doing. This is not a magic trick. Yeah. And the first time I watched this, I enjoyed it and I didn't understand most of the references, so... I've just I've just enjoyed doing the research and learning all this stuff about it, deepened my appreciation for it. My last question, I guess, primarily for Chris A. and and Jason, but Chris V, feel free to answer this question too if you've thought about it. But among the five films that we've watched so far and discussed so far, this is this is film number five. Where do you rank Hudsucker? Like, is it is it really the least of their films so far yes. for you? Yes, this is the least. <laughs> Well, the other four, it was Blood Simple, Raising Arizona, the Miller's Crossing, and Barton. Fink, I would say it's not even a preference. I think it's the most minor. And also the most expensive. The more I think about, the more, especially Barton Fink um, has, um, my appreciation for Barton Fink has, uh, and Miller's Crossing has both like, continues to grow because of this podcast and the discussions. Yeah, I agree movies. with that. I've I always liked them, that. but now I like really like them. I personally put mm-hmm. it, I think at number three, I think I go, uh, 
Raising Arizona, Barton Fink, and then mm-hmm. Nutsucker. And I think this also struggles, like, if you make it, you know, since we just watched and discussed Raising Arizona, you know, if you make that compare direct comparison to another one of their straightforward comedies, I think it falls so short of what Raising Arizona does that, it, yeah, minor is the word I would use, even though I love it. It's funny. It's like, I love this movie so much, yet, like, in the five movies we've watched so far, I would probably put at number four. Because my, especially as I've dug deeper into Miller's Crossing and and the the lineage behind that story, um, I I think it's those films have gotten just continue to grow. I grow an appreciation of, and not that I still don't appreciate Hudsucker, but um, it it feels minor at the, at at this point. I, I have a question for you guys. Um, well, actually, for, um, what, what bird, what is the flightless bird in the crossword puzzle? Is it Gnu or Emu? Or- I don't know, man. I'm terrible at crossword puzzles. <laughs> when she's doing the crossword puzzle. I didn't look that closely at the crossword puzzle. <laughs> well, she's like giving the crossword guy, the crossword guy, hence, uh, puzzles and like, what's a three letter word for a flightless bird? And, she says, uh, Gnu, G-N-U, or is it Emu? <laughs> and I'm like... All right. I I think that's a good, silly <laughs> note to end on, because mm-hmm. we'll just keep going, bringing up good details if we don't stop. Yeah, um, I know. Forever. <laughs> Chris, thank you so much for joining us to talk about the Hudsucker <laughs> Proxy. Thanks for having me. I'd love to come back. We'd love sometime. to... I would personally love to have you back very much. Um... No, this was great. I, yeah, feel a lot more comfortable now in my estimation of the Hudsucker Proxy in relationship to their yeah. work and some child is losing its mind in the background. So I think we're going to call it time. Um, I look forward. Are you referring to my kids? <laughs> yeah, it's probably right. They probably just saw Lyle Lyle Crocodile and they're like on. That movie was great. That's, that's the kind of those <laughs> the kind of film viewers, the passionate film viewers that you're raising into the world. I appreciate it, Jason. You're doing good work. Um, he wants to see Avatar, so the new Avatar, so badly, and he just watched the first one. Can he make? Is he old enough? Can he make it through a three hour movie in the theater? That's that's the only thing holding me back is that it's over a three hour movie. But I really want to take him to like a big screen 3D type thing because he hasn't done that yet and that like really fits the bill yeah if you're gonna but i also am like on but i some like three hours man like hold how old is he he's six it's a big decision okay. what you allow their first film in the theater to be well he's seen he's seen sonic too and, and he loved that and he loved the bad guys like we've seen movies in theaters but he's not seen like a oh, okay. big a big ass blockbuster like Avatar, and like, and this is the kid who laughed all the way through Jurassic Park <laughs> because he didn't understand why no one looked behind them. <laughs> <laughs> You're raising a film critic, yeah. Like he's halfway say, there. So kid's got a point. <laughs> I like going. I, I love that about you. <laughs> Anyway, that's enough about my kids. (laughs) All right, gentlemen. Until next time, uh, we got a date with a wood chipper soon. Um, Oh, yeah. (laughs) 
All right. right. Thanks. Thank you, Chris. It was so great to meet you. is edited and produced by me, Chris Ayers. Music by Nick Shelby and Mike Brenner at CosmicAmericanMusic.com. You can follow us on social media on Twitter at Cohen Brothers Pod and on Instagram and Facebook at The Life of the Mind Pod. You can also find my designs for Cohen Brothers alternative movie posters at Etsy.com slash shop slash Chris Ayers Creative. <laughs>